Welcome to the Pursuing Perspective podcast in connection with The Warrior Project and sponsored in part by the Medjukos Health Institute. This podcast brings together people who actively pursue healing and growth on their journey and want to help others do the same. It is not just another bank of ideas from experts in their field, but is also a place that includes paths for practical application to shift both beliefs and behaviors for the purpose of progression. It's about knowing where you're at and how to get to where you want to be. Hello friends, I'm so happy that you're here. I am your host, Chantel Thaxton-Blake, and this is episode 6, 12 Steps of Recovery from Adversity, Trauma, and Abuse, Part 2, covering steps 5, 6, and 7. We're just going to dive right in today to these steps, focusing on honest inventory, forgiveness, and commitment. These are pivotal steps in the process, so I want to give them adequate time and attention. You know, there's a lot within each one of these, and since I'm covering three, there's going to be a lot of information. So just know that I'm going to revisit each of these individually in later episodes so that we can go deeper into each step. But I want to be able to present enough information now to connect the main idea and focus of these 12 steps so that we can start moving through it. Before we jump in, though, to step five, let's review the first four steps. So step one, we admit that we are powerless over another's choices behaviors, and commitment to healing, while recognizing and claiming the power we have over our own choices, behaviors, and healing. Step two, we come to believe that there is within us an innate ability to heal and an inner knowing that can guide us on our healing journey. Step three, we make a decision to trust in the process of healing. And step four, we make a searching and fearless inventory of ourselves. This is where we left off Um, in the last episode, talking about this fearless and searching inventory. And this is, we just wanted to start observing and recognizing our thoughts and feelings that came up in connection with those events. Um, And then we're going to dive a little bit deeper in step five. Step five is this. We acknowledge and admit the truth of the experience, our role in that experience, and the role of others involved. So there's three main points with this step that we're gonna cover um, and then go into just in a little bit of detail. So point one in this step, without an accurate assessment of the situation, it is difficult to know the best course of action for healing. It is critical that we get as unbiased information as possible to make an accurate assessment. Point two, our ability to accurately acknowledge our role in an experience is dependent upon our capacity to take the appropriate amount of responsibility, neither too much nor too little. It is a tendency for us to either take more responsibility than we should in a situation, which leads to frustration and despair, or not enough responsibility, which leads to an inability to fully heal because we've moved to blaming or ignoring. Point three, our ability to look at the truth of the role of others involved is tied to our willingness to let go of personalizing the experience, our need to blame, and our need to write them as a certain character in our story and what type of explanatory style we use. So let's go into each of these a little bit. So point one, without an accurate assessment of the situation, it is difficult to know the best course of action for healing. And it is critical that we get as unbiased information as possible to make an accurate assessment. So let's compare this to going to a physician for, you know, maybe we have a cold or the flu or an injury. And if we go in to get the best treatment plan, we need the most accurate diagnosis possible. And so the physician is going to be asking lots of questions because the more information, the better. And multiple sources of information is going to give the best and most accurate picture. That's why they use a lot of diagnostic tools. That's going to be important. So again, when we are starting to look at the truth of the situation for our best healing treatment plan, we need to be able to look at all parts of it in as much honesty as possible. Sometimes we're talking about that information, you know, what really happened, bringing that up. We don't even really know what happened to us. This is why it's so critical that we become aware through seeking information, um, whether that's coming from other people that have been through a similar experience, maybe books, um, articles, um, and why. Let me give you an example. So, you know, sometimes someone can experience something in an abuse setting where they're not even recognizing what's happening. They just think, oh my gosh, I don't even trust my feelings anymore. I don't know what's happening. Maybe I'm crazy. And so if you come to the doctor saying, you know what, I think I'm crazy, fix that. 
when if we understood the truth that this individual had experienced gaslighting, um, which is a type of emotional and mental abuse to try to um, kind of shake their foundation of what's true and what's real and twist things so that they question their own inner knowing, then we can fix it correctly if we know that gaslighting, gaslighting is actually what happened. That's why it's so important where healing can be incomplete if we don't have the facts of what really happened. And sometimes we don't know, which is why we want to seek information and support so that we can understand and really know what was happening. You know, I mentioned this in the episode on grief. There were things that I'd experienced a loss with and I was experiencing emotions around that I thought was maybe just anxiety or depression and I didn't understand. It was grief. That's what I was dealing with. And then I couldn't process it as efficiently or effectively because I wasn't aware of what was really happening. So that's another reason this inventory in truth is so important is that we're really looking to understand the facts and the truth as much as possible about what happened. This is a hard thing with the step in general. You know, we really can't know the full truth of a situation and really we're only able to look at it through our perspective. Um, and this is something that leads us into this next part of this point about an, un, um, an unbiased you know, looking at this. So our brain is designed to organize any information it receives. So we have, and it's, and it's, our brain is designed to be efficient, as efficient as possible at that. So it's going to take any categories or beliefs that we currently hold and try to fit new information into those. So that can be helpful, but it can also be hurtful. That is known as um, confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall infor information in a way that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs or hypothesis. So it's hard because it allows us, I mean, it hinders us sometimes to really look at the full picture because we're only willing to take in information that supports our current beliefs. Dr. Adi Jaffe that I mentioned in the last episode from his book, um, The Abstinence Myth, when um, talking about confirmation bias, explained that once a belief is established, our brains selectively pay attention to information that falls in line with our beliefs rather than information that contradicts or expands them. So let me give you an example of this. So let's say you and I were going to listen to a speaker and you believe that this speaker is a wonderful person and I believe this speaker is a terrible person. So when I listen to this person, everything they say and do, I'm only going to use the evidence to confirm my belief that this person is terrible. And you're going to listen and pull in and use everything they say and do to confirm your belief and prove that they're wonderful. And that's why two people can have the same experience, but a very different or be at the same event, have a very different experience, right? Because that's so tied to that confirmation bias. And if that speaker actually does something that is in direct contrast to what we believe about them, then we will make up a story to justify it so we can maintain our belief system. And so this is one of the biggest issues um, that we can step into with this, this step five is to recognize that a lot of times we don't know the truth of everything within that experience and we just have to fill it in. But that's why we wanna check for our confirmation bias to be as in truth as possible. And this is a critical piece that this is as honest um, as we can be um, because of what that allows for that treatment plan, right? Going back to that, getting the most accurate diagnosis possible. Dr. Adi Jaffe, again, in his book, um, his points that he came up with, his three main points or principles for recovery, his first one was honest exploration. And he says this about it. Honest exploration involves looking into the life experiences that have brought you to this point because you can't address what you are not aware of. Done in a judgment-free, supportive manner, this exploration can uncover damaging beliefs, unhelpful thought patterns or habits, and unrealistic expectations. For so many of the people I work with, this process takes time, but once completed, it forever changes their perception of the actual struggle. This is going to give us a bigger, broader picture of this so that we can more accurately move through the rest of the healing steps. So, this leads us to the second point. Our ability to accurately acknowledge our role in an experience is dependent upon our capacity to take the appropriate amount of responsibility, neither too much nor too little. It is a tendency for us to either take more responsibility than we should in a situation, which leads to frustration and despair, or not enough responsibility, which leads to an inability to fully heal because we've moved to blaming or ignoring. 
this somewhat goes back to step one, right? We have to understand what we can control and what we can't, because then we're just in spinning energy that's not really moving us forward. But what can happen here, again, and this is why we talked about confirmation bias and our beliefs before this, because one of the main reasons that we can take too much responsibility is that maybe we have a belief that everything is our fault. And so that's when we can do those things like try to control things that we cannot because it's tied to that belief that everything is our responsibility and thus everything is our fault. This also tends to speak to our belief about guilt and shame and our relationship to them. Shame resilience is critical for us to do step five well. Brene Brown talks about shame resilience and she's identified four elements of shame resilience. The first one is recognizing shame and understanding its triggers. The second is practicing critical awareness, which is that reality check, challenging that, which we talked about in episode four on reframing. The third element is reaching out, so sharing our story. We're going to talk about that in a little bit um, and, and how we want to do that for positive affect, not negative. And the fourth point is this, speaking shame. So just talking about it and asking for what you need. And we're going to be building on that into some later episodes as well. So again, just to talk about that first point or that first element in shame resilience is to understand what shame is and the difference between shame and guilt. So shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. Discerning between those two is going to be important. Now, it's it's confusing because guilt is also an uncomfortable feeling, but the difference is that it's helpful. In comparing guilt and shame, Brown said, the psychological discomfort, something similar to cognitive dissonance, is what motivates meaningful change. Guilt is just as powerful as shame, but its influence is positive, while shame's is destructive. In fact, in my research, I found that shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we can change and do better. That's from her book, Daring Greatly. And that is so important in that statement that we understand what makes guilt positive is that it leads to change. When we just let guilt sit in our body and and just wreak, it will wreak havoc on us mentally, physically, emotionally, when it just sits and we just swim in guilt. Um, and so it's, it's an emotion that's intended to trigger action. So if we do nothing with it, then that's when it can become toxic and will likely move to shame. So one of the things that we want to recognize is that when guilt comes up, that we just recognize and separate that it's just something that we did that we would like to change and that it's not who we are. And showing up with self-compassion self is critical for change to hap happen. So often we think that self-judgment and beating ourselves up will lead to change, and that actually doesn't. Research is very clear that self-compassion is what yields change far more than self-judgment. And we're going to talk about that when we get into the strength and portion of our RISE theme. So it's really critical as we move through these steps that um, if we want real change, that's not going to happen if we're rooted in shame because that just keeps us stuck. So as we begin this inventory, again, we want to make sure that we're recognizing and understanding the difference between guilt and shame and our relationship to them that they are just, you know, part of our experience and not necessarily who we are, these things that we're identifying in this inventory. Now, it's important that we also do not take too little responsibility. So, again, the way that we can make sure that we will take the responsibility that we need to is if we have a healthy relationship with guilt and do not move into shame. Then we're more likely to show up and take responsibility where we need to. But um, in that, you know, if we don't, then what happens is that part just doesn't get healed because it's just sitting there. That's a part that's ours to own and take care of. If we don't take responsibility for it, nothing gets done with it. And then it's just kind of spinning on its own again and can show up, you know, later on as an issue for us. And so that's why we really want to take the appropriate amount of responsibility so that we can heal what is ours to heal, but not take on so much that we're struggling in despair and frustration because we're trying to heal things that aren't ours to heal. And to recognize again that we can do this and take responsibility when we recognize that our worth is not connected to um, our behaviors or our, you know, some of the things that we experience here. Uh, Brown said this, a sense of worthiness inspires us to be vulnerable, share openly and persevere. Shame keeps us small, resentful and afraid. So Part of this is we talked about the power of being vulnerable in step four and in step five, being willing to look at this. And it's so important that in that, that we 
come from that recognition that our worth is not something we have to earn, that it just is. So that the worth is solid, which is why um, that was such a critical piece we talked about with step four, because that ensures that we are willing to be vulnerable enough and open enough to look at this inventory, to look at all the truth in a way that then we're bringing all of the accurate information out for the best healing treatment plan possible. One of the groups that I love on Instagram that I follow called Rising Women, they're just so good and share such amazing pieces of information on healing as well. And one of their quotes said this, healing doesn't happen by changing our core personality or hiding the parts of ourselves we deem flaws. Healing occurs through self-acceptance, through loving ourselves whole, shadow and all. So now shadow, if you hear that in spiritual or energetic work, it just is that dark side or those dark things or those lower vibration um, emotions and experiences that we have. You know, we all have dark and light within us. Um, it's about which part we choose to act on and focus on. When Brown was talking about vulnerability, she said this, Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. I love that. Um, that we have to look and willingly bring up all of it, shine that light on the dark parts so that we can heal them and not with judgment, but with self-compassion. The third point of this step is our ability to look at the truth of the role of others involved is tied to our willingness to first, let go of personalizing the experience, second, our need to blame, and third, our need to write them as a certain character in our story and what type of explanatory style we use. Dr. Fred Luskin, the director of the Stanford University Forgiveness Project, explains in his book, Forgive for Good, that there are three core components that underlie the creation of long-standing hurt and grievances that need forgiveness. His book is fantastic, by the way, and one that I would highly recommend just to work through the process of forgiveness. So before he gives us these strategies to work through forgiveness, because forgiveness is a skill, it's what we're going to get into in the next step, he talked about what actually creates that grievance that needs forgiveness in the first place. And it comes down to these three components. First, the exaggerated taking of personal offense. Second, the blaming of the offender for how you feel. And third, the creation of a grievance story. So let's look at these quickly. First one, personal offense. Now there's a personal and impersonal quality to everything that we experience. One of the things that, I mean, it happened to us, right? It feels very personal and it should, but sometimes when we take it so personally, it makes it difficult to move out of that pain of it. So one of the things that we want to do is bring in a little more of that impersonal quality. And that comes in two ways. First, by recognizing that we are not the only one that has experienced this. As awful and horrible as that is, a lot of the things that are tragic that create trauma or the abuse or those experiences that create adversity in our lives, we are not the only one that's experienced that. And to recognize that that common shared experience helps us understand and take that a little less personally and to know that then also there's hope within that that we can overcome as well and we can connect with those people that have had a similar experience and work together to move and heal from it. The second part about how we can take a little less personal offense is to recognize that it's not about us. This was huge for me too. You know, it goes back to that first step as well, but it was the recognition that a person's behavior says very little about us, almost nothing, and everything about them. It is a reflection of where they're at at that time, their awareness, their healing, their understanding. And so it's really not about us. And when we understand that, it doesn't excuse behavior, but it allows us to come in with an awareness to disconnect from an overly personal connection with that or over-personalizing over it and allows us to eventually bring in empathy, which is going to be a critical piece to allow forgiveness. Now, the second point that he brought up that creates a grievance is blaming the offender. So while it's critical that we give appropriate responsibility to others involved in that incident, it's important that we don't blame them for our feelings after. When we do that, that keeps the power with them. When we blame another person for how we feel, we grant them the power to regulate our emotions. Holding people accountable for their actions is not the same as blaming them for how we feel. That's critical. That's why we can feel like we're re-experiencing the trauma or the, the, the pain over and over again, because 
we keep giving them control over our feelings that it happened, you know, two years ago, but as soon as they think about it, all of those feelings come up, the anger, the fear, the sadness, and that's because we haven't moved through those feelings. And that's why we're going to get into that in our next episode. That step eight of processing those emotions is going to be critical for our healing. And as these emotions come up right now, they are going to be coming up as you're working through step five. And again, these steps, you know, they're steps and there is an element of kind of building towards certain things, but really they're not linear. No process is, right? We're going to ebb and flow through these, cycle back around. So as you learn more about how to process um, your feelings, this is something you can bring back in as you're working through step five. It's something that I was able to do because I'll go back and pick up these steps when additional things happen. And it's each one becomes more effective because now I have skills that we picked up in those that we're going to pick up in those later steps that I can come back and more effectively process even in those earlier steps like processing emotions. One of the things in connection with blaming the offender that we want to realize too is this. Luskin said this in his book, quote, you can never know exactly why another person has acted cruelly. You can never know for sure why you feel angry or upset. You never know any other person's thoughts. You are only you are also not privy to each of the um, sorry. You are also not privy to each of the painful things that have happened to a person who hurt you. You cannot know if the actions the person committed were meant to hurt you. You can't know which of the things in your past is actually influencing your experience today. You can only feel your hurt and offer a hypothesis as to why you're in pain. That's huge. It goes back to that that I talked about with the step. Why the step is so complex is because we really can't know fully the full truth or the experience of the other person or people involved. We can only feel our pain, um, talk about our experience and, and create a hypothesis from there, which is why we want to be so careful and watch that bias and those other pieces to have as, mo as much accurate, the most accurate information possible. The third thing that he talked about is the creation of a grievance story where we can, you know, it's the, again, that story because we're filling in the blanks based on our pain and our belief system, or our bias, um, we can affect that story. And the main purpose of why we create stories as humans is to help us understand what happened. And so it's important to recognize that if we bring in that bias, we're still not going to get to the full purpose of that. And again, that need to understand what happened. Um, Andrew Saunderson talked about that in the episode on grief when he said, you know, so often they want to understand why is this happening, but that can just spin us and lead to frustration where meaning will come. The step one is just to feel the feelings and to just sit with it. Um, and, and meaning just happens, he talked about. Now, Carrie Drake Saunderson in the episode on reframing said, now we can create that space for meaning to come in. And that happens by going through the healing process, by looking at how we're framing it and how we're experiencing that. But that trying to just force or find meaning can actually really cause some frustration. So we've got to be careful that sometimes we don't even need to create a story, but we are because we're trying to find meaning. And if we just kind of let it sit and feel the feelings, then that will help affect the way that we create that story from a more healed and aware place. So in telling our stories, you know, in all of them, we are the protagonist and we want to be one, I mean, it's why we're so attracted to that archetype of the hero's journey. We want to be the hero. We want to rise above, especially, you know, in that optimistic explanatory style. We want to overcome. But in doing that, sometimes we create villains in our story because we want the story of redemption. And that story of redemption is a positive thing, but sometimes it can be negative when we create villains that keep being villains in our story long after the event occurred. And so again, that's just giving them more power. So we want to be mindful about when we're creating our story. Are we making them villains and giving them more power than just maybe they were a part in our story that gave us some information that helped us to grow and become more of who we wanted to become? We really get to determine as the, the writers of our story, the weight that the characters in our story have on our story. And so we want to be careful and mindful of that, which is one of the reasons we want to move into these other steps to help um, do that in a way that's going to have a positive affect for our moving forward. So again, it's about telling our story um, in a way that's going to have a positive affect. When we keep telling a negative story, that victim story, then our healing is greatly hindered because what's interesting is we actually keep, when we are telling that story over and over again, we can lock those feelings and experience in place into our physical body. And so what happens is we get in this cycle of feeling those emotions over and over again. So we keep getting re-injured. That causes the same, they've shown, you know, if you're thinking about that situation, it'll cause the same or similar physical response as when the, the trauma initially happened. 
And so that's why we want to be very careful about how we're telling that story so that we're not re-injuring ourselves over and over again. Now we can tell a story for support. He talked about that, you know, talking it out through a couple of, with a couple of trusted um, people, whether that's a therapist or friends or family, helps us process it. Um, and it has, you know, a positive effect on our overall health. But when we keep telling it over and over and over again, um, from that, you know, pessimistic explanatory style, that's when it can have that negative affect. And this is a critical truth to be aware of. As we are telling our current story, we are writing our next one. How we tell our current story starts to create that framework and that outline for our next one. So if we don't want to continue the same story, we have to recognize that's our point of control. That how we tell our current story or what just recently happened allows us to have an effect on the next story. And that can be positive or negative, And that is really, really up to us. So coming into is just to wrap this step up, going back to, um, you know, episode one, when I talked about how I want to envision, I wanted everyone to envision kind of what it looked like for us from our, you know, more healed and whole place, but we have to accept where we're at to get to where we want to be. And that's um, Dr. Adi Jaffe's second principle as well in that book, Abstinence Myth, radical acceptance. Once we accept where we're at and the truth of the experience, that's when we can do something about it. And I love this quote from his book. It says, honest exploration shines a light on our previously dark path. Radical honesty allows us to walk along it to move forward. I love that. Um, This really does, when we go to this healing space and allow us to look at both the dark and the light within the situation, then we can heal it in a way that's profound and moves us in the direction of our wholeness. I want to end this step because my mother talked about this in something that she wrote called Within. Should darkest night close in around you, and in spite all of your efforts and those of others refuse to leave, you can still know the bright of day. Go within. And if you desire it enough, you'll find the way. It's a unique light, fresh, clean, clarifying, yet subtle. It's not unlike the intrinsic illuminating rays that spill through the clouds after a spring rain, making the world appear as if it had momentarily acquired a fresh coat of paint. Within this treasured light has the capability of bestowing this same kind of renewal to hopes and dreams. As you begin searching inside yourself, at first your eyes might behold only a glimpse of light, as did mine, but you will know that you have seen it. It is there. Somewhere inside of you, it is there. The belief in the possibility of its existence has been born. Hold on to that, and you shall never be the same. Days, weeks, months, and even years have passed since that event took place in my life, and I still continue to discover new paths that lead me to that light. It can frequently, successfully elude me, though I diligently seek it, and desire intently to continuously experience its wonder. But even in those times, its memory has the ability to light my way, by giving me patience to rest, courage to begin anew, and the discipline, determination, and persistence to search further, and to yet continue on. If I were to never again externally experience the brightness of day, it seems it doesn't matter quite so much anymore, though at this moment I am encompassed by an unyielding night, comprised of a defiant, deepening darkness, I am not without faith, and I am not without hope. I have finally learned that there is a light within me, a slowly, softly dawning light, and I see that light as possessing the magical potential to become an invincible, magnificent morning. In the midst of darkest night, I finally learned that there can be within me an invincible, magnificent morning. I love that to just close that step out, to recognize that no matter what we encounter in that, that we have this light within us. To and, and when it seems dark and we can't find that, to know that it's there and that it can get brighter as we move through our healing, that we have both of those within us and we can help facilitate which one is going to grow as we move on this healing journey. Let's go to step six, and this is where we're going to talk about this really powerful step of forgiveness. Step six says, we forgive ourselves for our role in this experience and make amends with ourselves as necessary. We forgive others for their role in this experience and release them to their own healing. There are four points for this step. The first one, understanding what forgiveness is and what it is not, 
who it is for and when it is best given is critical for it to be real and effective. Point two, forgiveness is a choice of letting go. Letting go means loss and loss means there will be grief. Processing grief is integral in our ability to forgive. Point three, forgiveness is a process that allows us to let go of our past to heal our present. And four, for healing to be complete, there must be forgiveness. So let's look at point one. Understanding what forgiveness is and what it is not, who it is for and when it is best given is critical for it to be real and effective. So first of all, forgiveness is a choice. It's not something that just happens and it's not a feeling. Sometimes we assume it is because something has happened. It's been so long since the traumatic event. It's like, oh yeah, 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 I forgive them simply because time has passed and those feelings maybe aren't so loud and present. But if we haven't really processed through those feelings, it's not completely gone and it could come up and show up in other areas of our lives. So forgiveness is an action. It requires action and it's a choice to do that. And our ability to apply that action is really dependent upon our beliefs and feelings and thoughts around what forgiveness is. So let's just think about, you know, what are your thoughts and beliefs about forgiveness that may be hindering or helping your ability to use forgiveness or apply it in your life? So for me, this was a huge one. I had a really hard time forgiving because I thought it was like saying, oh, well, then it's okay. What this person did to me or to someone that I love, then it's okay if I forgive them. But that's not what forgiveness is about. It's not about allowing or condoning behavior. It's not about forgetting that something painful happened or to minimize the hurt. It's critical that we understand that. Forgiveness is about taking responsibility for our feelings and it's about freedom to let go and move forward. So that moves, moves us into, you know, who is forgiveness for? Of course, it's for everyone involved, but really it's about the person doing the forgiving. That's who it's for because it, it, it releases us from that. It allows us to let go, to move forward. And that's why it's so important to understand what it is and who it's for, that it's really not about condoning or allowing the other person to continue that, but it's recognizing that if we don't, we're still hooked into that in a way that keeps us hurting and keeps us stuck. And forgiveness allows us to let go so that we can move forward. And so that really is for us doing the forgiving. That's really who it's for. And that's another reason why we want to apply that forgiveness to ourself. Now, it might seem kind of weird to put in that step, right? It's like, okay, well, if something happened to us, why do I need to forgive myself? This was totally, you know, to me, or this was a trauma that I had zero control over. But what can happen within that is that we can actually recognize as we do step five that we just went through, maybe things like maybe we let boundaries be crossed over and over again. Maybe we kept abandoning ourselves. Maybe we didn't take action when we should. Maybe we responded in a negative way to the trauma and we may have guilt around that. And so that can be, you know, that's why that understanding that guilt and shame is important as well because we might really have things that we don't recognize we need to forgive ourselves for, for full forgiveness, for full healing in this experience. And so we want to look at that and recognize that forgiveness for ourselves is critical as well. Um, and understand that we, and show up with compassion when we do that, you know, that we were also just doing the best we could with where we were at at that time. And to, so that we can forgive ourselves for that and move forward um, and make amends that we're going to talk about. So for example, you know, um, maybe we, let boundaries be crossed over and over. And we want to forgive ourselves for that, but then make that commitment and make amends and say, you know, to ourselves, you know, I'm so sorry that I let boundary after boundary be crossed and basically abandon you. And that's why I'm doing this healing work so that I don't do that again, so that I show up for myself, so that I create boundaries to honor myself that honors everyone else around me. That's critical. That's part of why we're going on this healing journey is so that we can also show up better for everyone in our lives, but ourselves primarily. So forgiveness is best when given when it is real and complete. So going back to that idea of, you know, why do we forgive? It's a choice, but a lot of times it's a choice because we're told we're supposed to forgive. So we might say, oh, I'm supposed to forgive this person. Okay, I forgive them. But when we haven't processed any of the emotions or even looked at the truth of what happened. So Forgiveness to be real and complete, it has to be on those two things. It has to be in full truth, which is why step five is, is the one right before this step for forgiveness. We have to look at the truth of all of it without bias. And then we have to recognize this is the next critical point of this step, that forgiveness is a choice of letting go and letting go means loss and loss means there will be grief. 
so that we can understand that if we say we just forgave someone, but we didn't experience the anger, the sadness, the bargaining, whatever is, is involved in that process of grief, we really can't accomplish full forgiveness. We need to move through all of those emotions and then we're ready to move into forgiveness when it can be real and complete. So let's go into that. That leads us into that second point that forgiveness is a choice of letting go. Letting go means loss and loss means there will be grief. Processing grief is integral in our ability to forgive. So the loss, it can come from a loss and a letting go. Let me talk about both of those. So if forgiveness is needed, then usually an offense has happened if it's involving another person, right? And so maybe, you know, we were cheated on or someone left us or um, someone treated us poorly. Then what happens is those are losses, you know, right? A loss of trust, a loss of connection, a loss of a relationship, a loss of an expectation or hope. We have to recognize that when we need to forgive something um, and an offense has happened, there's a loss associated with that. And we need to then process that loss uh, through the process of grief to be able to forgive. If we cannot forgive, it's because we're not able to let go of something. So maybe we're not ready to let that relationship go. And we think that if we um, just stay angry, that keeps a connection, right? So when we can't forgive, it's because we can't let go. And the reason we can't let go is because there's a benefit or a payoff. So we have to, if we find it difficult to forgive, we need to check and say, okay, so what can I not let go of? What am I hanging on to? And what is the payoff for me hanging on to it? And really see if it's an actual payoff. Because hanging on to something that's not serving us and they've really left already, that's just keeping us in pain, right? Um, maybe another benefit or payoff is that we want to stay a victim. So we keep telling that story. And if we forgive them, then we have to let go of that story. But again, is that really a payoff in our highest good? You know, it might feel like it, but if we look at it in truth, not really. The other reason that we might not be able to let go is because of a need. Um, one of my mentors, Dale Holloway, I've mentioned his work before. He talks about how we have needy energy. I actually learned about needy energy first from the Sedona Method. And there's a book called The Sedona Method where it talks about how as humans, we have these core needs, like a need to control, a need for love, and a need for connection. And that a lot of times our behaviors are because of that need. And until we heal or process or move through that needy energy, then we're going to be reacting from that place. I mean, think about it. You know, if someone needs attention, they're just so obnoxious about getting attention that actually they drive everybody nuts and everybody just ignores them, right? So what's ironic about needy energy is that the very thing that we need, if we're in that space, we're actually pushing away. So we're going to talk more about needy energy and how to process that in step nine. But right now, just understand that sometimes when we can't forgive, it's because we may have a need behind it um, rather than just a payoff. So maybe a need for justice. Again, the need for justice, we can let go of that need when we recognize back to step one, we can't control what happens to other people. We can't as much as we would like to. And letting that go allows us to move forward and not hang on to the pain of that if they're not getting the justice that we think should happen at that time. And just trust that the universe is going to take care of that at the right time. Or we might have a need for things to be fair or a need to control or a need to connect. So just checking in and saying, you know, if it's not that I can't let go of something, do I have a need around that? And again, we're going to go into that a little bit more later. So all of these things just recognize um, can be a hindrance to our forgiveness. So to recognize maybe if we can't, that we need to process the loss of it and go through the grief and then analyze what we're not able to let go of, why we're not able to let go of it, what that benefit or need might be, and then work through those. Now, one of the things that um, was brought up about what forgiveness is, when we're talking about what it is and what it isn't, is that forgiveness is a learned skill. And within that, because it's a skill, it's there's a process that we can learn. And what's so powerful too about this is that this letting go um, of those pieces and that um, the loss, all of that, it's allowing us to let go of our past so that we can heal our present. Why do we want to do that? Why do we even want to let go of these things? You know, why do we want to go to that work and all of that pain of letting go and grieving the losses? Why? Because when we don't, the effect that it has on us mentally, physically, emotionally, we even know from research the physical effects on the body when we keep hanging on to hurt and disappointment. Karen Swartz, um, MD, director of the Mood Disorders Adult Consultation Clinic at the John Hopkins Hospital, talked about it in a study that they did and she said what she shared what she found. She said there is an enormous physical burden to being hurt and disappointed. Chronic anger puts you into a fight or flight mode 
which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, and diabetes, among other conditions. Forgiveness, however, calms stress levels and leading to improved health. Studies have found that the act of forgiveness can, you, can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, and reducing pain, blood pressure, and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. Friends, that's why we want to let it go. Because really, if we don't, again, that's why forgiveness is for us. It's We're the ones that are getting the negative effect, not the other person we're not forgiving. We are. And so we want to really understand the why might give us the motivation to, to work through that forgiveness and let go. Even in studies that Luskin did, in, in his, he does a forgiveness training specifically, and he was looking at the subjects. He had them rehearse um, you know, the offense over and over and then rehearse um, you know, letting it go. And he said, when people think about forgiving an offender, it leads to improved functioning in their cardiovascular nervous systems. When rehearsing the grudge, so just thinking about it again, the subject's blood pressure, heart rate, and arterial wall pressure all rose. So again, it's even in that telling of the story, not even when it's happening, we're going to repeat those things, which is again why we want to let it go. So once we realize the benefits of why we want to do this um, and recognize that forgiveness again is a choice, but it's also a skill. So there's a process involved in that. Before we talk about some of the things that can be applied as a skill in that forgiveness process, Luskin talked about things that we need to do to get ready to forgive. There were three that he identified. First, we need to know what your feelings are about what happened. So name your feelings, feel them, and process them, right? So this is what we talked about even in step four, just starting to observe and name your feelings, writing them down, letting yourself feel them. And then we dived in a little bit deeper with step five, um, really understanding their connection to what happened. And then we're going to go into, when we get into step eight, processing those emotions, those feelings. The second thing that he said we need to do to get ready to forgive is to be clear about the action that wronged you. So that's why we have step five before step six. Again, is because this is part of our ability to be able to forgive is that we need to first look at that experience and all involved in truth. So watching for that bias again. And the third one to get ready to forgive is to share our experience with a couple of trusted people. Again, to process it, to work through it, not everybody, not telling that grievance story over and over again, but just working through that and processing that initially. So once we go through those things to get ready to forgive, um, we're able to move through it. And what he said is that really we take those three things that create the, the grievance and um, turn them around. So instead of taking things personally, we're going to take hurts less personally by bringing that impersonal, you know, recognizing that there's that common experience and that it's not about us, right? And one of the things that I love in Louisa Hay's book, you know, um, on healing, she said, how hard is it for most of us to understand that they, whoever they are, we need to forgive, we're also in pain. We need to understand that they were doing the best they could with the understanding, awareness, and knowledge they had at that time. Again, not excusing behavior, but allows us to bring in the empathy and change those negative emotions to more positive ones as we move through that process of forgiveness. The second one then is rather than blaming, we're going to take responsibility for how we feel. This gives us our power back. And what's so great is we get to control what we focus on. He talks about how we don't need to keep focusing on the negative aspects of that experience. We get to choose that. Um, one of the things that we can do is use that through positive you know, talk, meditation. That's one of the things that my mother did to replace those negative thoughts and the things that could consume her mind because of her chronic pain. She had to actively and diligently choose to replace those. One of the strategies that he identified and created and uses is he calls it PERT, which stands for Positive Emotion Refocusing Technique, um, where he talks kind of a little meditation where your first step is you're bringing attention to your breath and you're doing slow belly breathing, where when you breathe in, you expand your belly out. And then as you slowly let your air out, you just let your belly relax. Then that second step is you bring into your mind's eye a person that you love or a calming scene. Continue to visualize that as you're practicing that soft belly breathing. And then when you get into that relaxed state, then you ask the peaceful and relaxed part of you what you can do to resolve your difficulty. And that's so powerful because it's a strategy we can use when trauma or something is happening or right at, sometimes not right when it's happening, we're in that fight or flight, but when we can start to process it in this step, or as something's you know triggering some of that the, those emotions, we can take a breath and reconnect to that relaxed and more peaceful part of us where we can get into our rational brain. Because what happens when we're in fight or flight mode is we go into that um, reactive brain where we're not rationalizing you know, doing rational thinking, we're reacting. It's about keeping us safe, running or attacking. And so we cannot make decisions from that place. 
um, and we cannot really work through our healing in that place, which is another reason why we want to process those emotions and move out of that so that we can come from a more rational place um, for our overall healing. So the other piece when we're talking about taking responsibility for our feelings is this is one of the things that I learned from one of my greatest mentors, Linda Barker. Um, she honestly is so much of the reason for my healing. Um, and she understands energy on a really deep level and how it works. And she, you know, it was very simple, but it was really profound that out of when you're in those negative emotions um, and those energy of like sadness or anger, all those other ones, she said that gratitude shifts fast, shifts energy faster than any other positive emotion. So even if we can just take a breath and think of one thing that we're grateful for, that will help move us out of that state. Um, where we can kind of process those negative emotions and not go right to blaming or sitting in and anchoring to those negative feelings. And that third part then for forgiveness, that third step, is to choose to tell a story of redemption or overcoming rather than a grievance story. So again, that goes back to our optimistic explanatory style um, and choosing that. Now that's part of an action, right? That we're going to take that as we're going to tell our story in a different focus. And one of the things that we want to end with is this, that once we're ready to fully forgive and make that choice, we want to seal it with an action. So this is where we're talking about connecting all four aspects of ourselves, the mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. When we're processing things on a mental and emotional and spiritual level, which we are through this process of forgiveness, we want to solidify that by doing a physical action. So for, um, or seal it as, as we talk about. So if you want, if you can talk to the person who wronged you, if you're not wanting to do that, then write about your forgiveness in a journal or even talk about it to someone else in your life whom you trust. So those are things that we can do. We want to do a physical action um, in that forgiveness process so that it seals that, what we've done from an emotional, physical, and spiritual level. And again, the last point of, of this step is that for healing to be complete, there must be forgiveness. It's just there's no way around it. And so we want to make sure that that is part of what we're doing um, for overall healing. Unforgiveness, you know, in those steps that we talked about from the physical recovery, you know, we have um, that Dr. Blake talked about hemostasis where we're stopping the bleeding and inflammation is the second step where blood is being sent there and it's taking away things that shouldn't be there. This is what we're doing on an emotional and mental level on these steps right now. We're pulling things up and taking out what doesn't need to be there, processing it, sending in good resources with the next stage of pr um, proliferation. And then we'll begin to remodel. Um, but what happens in that healing is for if unforgiveness is actually where we create infection, right? We're going to re-aggravate re everything and cause continued pain and it stops our healing. So forgiveness is critical. We want to consider unforgiveness like a toxin that could create, you know, an infection in, during our healing journey and thinking about it that way and understanding how critical that is and the long-term effect it has and the benefits of forgiveness give us that motivation um, to do that because it is so critical for our healing to be complete. Wrap up To wrap up today, let's go to step seven. And it's a simple one, um, but we don't want to not, because of its simplicity, recognize the power in it. And this is step seven. We fully commit to doing the work that is necessary for healing. There are two points here. There is great power and commitment to propel us forward on our healing path. And the second point, full healing is best attained when healing is addressed on all four levels, emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual or energetic. So let's look at the first one. There is great power and commitment to propel us forward on our healing path. This is the best way I can describe this is from a quote that I just love by William Hutchinson Murray. He's a Scottish mountaineer and writer that wrote about things around World War I. And he said this about commitment, quote, until one is committed, there is hesitancy the chance to draw back, always, in effectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits to oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from this decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. That is powerful. And this has been my experience. That once I committed fully to my healing, literally the universe was like, awesome, let's do this. And the people came into my life, people that I have mentioned, Linda, Dale, um, Tara, there's, you know, friends, books, um, 
there's just so many people that have come in my life that were further down the healing path and provided exactly what I needed at that perfect time because I had committed to that. I cannot tell you how important this step is enough, even though it seems simple, to right now make that commitment to your healing so that you can move forward without hesitancy and without ineffectiveness. And to do that, a part of that full commitment is that recognizing that full healing is best attained when we're addressing all four levels, which is that second point. That we have to commit to healing, not just physically or emotionally or mentally or spiritually, that we need to recognize that for it to be full, we need to address all those. And not to get overwhelmed or that we have to do them all at once, but we want to be aware of that. If we've been through an emotional trauma and we're not taking care of ourselves physically, we're not eating, we're not sleeping, right? That's going to affect even our recovery from the emotional end. All of these are integrated and work together. So we want to be mindful that during an emotional trauma, we want to get extra rest, really be mindful that we're eating and eating good, you know, help, healthy foods and do it in a conscious way. We want to be examining our thoughts during that time, identifying distorted thinking patterns and shifting those. And again, we're going to get all of these into all of these in the next few steps. We're focusing now specifically on the emotional area next, then the mental area, and then the um, energetic, and then the physical. We're going to be moving through those. So just recognizing that when we're going through all of those, our healing is more complete. Connecting to the divine, identifying negative beliefs, sitting with our emotions, um, all of those things we're going to be talking about. And it's going to be such a powerful thing. And again, not to get overwhelmed, but no, we're just going to do it one step at a time. And my mother captured this beautifully in one little poem that she did. With frequently and a little bit, the candle of change is lit. Replacing any negative thoughts, decide, commit, then do it. So that's what I asked today as, as we as we leave um, and close out from this episode, that look at these steps. These are your takeaways, your action items to work through those. And really when you get to step seven, before we jump in to the steps eight through 10 that we're going to cover next episode, to really make that commitment as we move forward. Remember that you can find notes and references for this podcast at pursuingperspective.org slash podcast so that you can take your time and go back through all of these again. In this space of introspection, the I and our rise theme that we're in, we're going to move into processing those emotions, thoughts, and beliefs as part of those 12 steps, steps 8 through 10 in the next episode. So I hope you'll join us. I look forward to connecting with you on this journey of healing and growth as we pursue perspective and progression. Until next time. Thank you for joining us today. For more podcasts and information on events, visit pursuingperspective.org.